Father, we stand in your presence here at this pulpit today, prepared and ready to share your word. We thank you for your word. It's manna from heaven. It strengthens our spirits today. We pray that you'll not only encourage us, Lord, but you'll challenge us afresh to live by faith, to trust you implicitly. No matter what we're facing today, no matter what the challenge is, that our trust will be wholly on you and nothing else. So Lord, open our eyes and open our ears. Let us see your word and let us hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Come with me please to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23. Uh, this is my text this morning. And uh, I want to read it, uh, first of all, from the New King James. By the way, uh, almost every time I preach, I would be using the New King James, just in case you wondered. But I also want to read this verse from the New Living Translation as well. So Hebrews 11, chapter, Hebrews 11 verse 23 By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. And in the New Living uh, Translation, it was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months. They saw that God had given them an unusual child and they were not afraid of what the king might do. Acts 7.20 says the child was well-pleasing to God. Now, as human beings, we are a complex uh, jumble of emotions and feelings. We have a tremendous capacity to think, uh, to ponder, to rationalize. We sense, we feel, we emote, we express joy and sadness, elation, disappointment, optimism and pessimism. And among all these often conflicting feelings and emotions and senses, two are quite prominent. One is we have an amazing capacity for faith. God gave us the capacity for faith to trust him. Secondly, we have an amazing capacity for fear. All of us struggle at times with fear. And as believers, we've got to make sure that our faith overcomes our fears. Faith and fear are complete opposites. They are diametrically opposed. Faith releases, fear binds. Faith encourages, fear discourages. Faith lifts the spirits. Fear deflates the very soul. Faith moves us forward in the plans of God But fear holds us back from trusting him and moving ahead in his purposes. Now, I should qualify at this point that not all fear is bad, of course. You know, the the fear of walking out into a street full of traffic without looking left or right, I mean, that's a good fear. That's a sensible fear. The fear of not wanting to stick your hand in an open fire is a good fear. But the fear I'm talking about here in the scripture is a fear that binds, a fear that brings bondage, a fear that torments, a fear that causes us to hold back from doing the will and the purpose of God. 
Now, Moses' parents had a choice here. They had a choice. They could live in fear of what the king was going to do, or they could live by faith in what God would do. They had that choice. The former would cause them to, uh, to miss the purposes of God, not only for their lives, but for their son's life. And not only that, although they didn't know it at this moment, but not only that, but for the whole nation that they represented it. And the latter, walking by faith, would see them honored and would see the life of their son honored. And not only that, that he would become the great deliverer for the children of Israel. And so they chose fear over faith. They chose hope over despair. They chose belief over doubt. They chose trust over panic. And you and I, at various points in our life, that's what we have to do as well. Uh, we will be challenged. There are lots of challenges in life. It may be health challenges. It may be financial challenges. It may be relational challenges. It may be in the workplace. It may be our employment. There's a thousand things that we'll have to face challenges. And the best way and the only successful way is by faith and trust in the living God. Whenever we act out of fear, and, and often we do, we have to be honest, but whenever we act out of fear, then we're allowing that, that the old man, that old nature, the old carnal nature that Paul talks about, we allow that to, to overcome and, and to make the choices and decisions for us. But whenever we, whenever we step out in faith and trust and believe in God, uh, then that's the new man. That's the, the redeemed human spirit. That's, that's God putting into our lives what he has destined us for, to trust him. Then whenever we do that, then of course, it's much, much better. And then God is honored and God blesses us in the process. Fear will neutralize your faith or faith will neutralize your fear, one or the other. Now, in the natural, in this story, Moses' parents had much to be afraid about. They truly had. The king's command was for the midwives to put to death every male Hebrew that was born. And that would be enough to strike terror in the heart of any parent. But they were slaves at this time in Egypt with hardly any say at all whatsoever. And so you can see how in the natural that would be a fearful thing to face. But actually, they didn't react in fear. They responded in faith and trust in God. They didn't really react in fear of what the Pharaoh or the devil, we could say, might do. But they responded in faith of what the Lord could do. And so, even though it was threatening and intimidating, but they overcome all of those feelings, they overcame them by their faith and trust in the Lord. And in verse 23, it tells us that they hid him for three months. Whenever he was born, they hid him for three months. Now, if we didn't know that they did all of this by faith, then we would conclude they hid him for three months because of fear. And we wouldn't blame them for that. That would have been quite natural. If we had been in that position without faith, that's exactly what we would have done too. But because it says they did this by faith, not out of fear, they hid him for three months. Now, there's a little lesson for us here. And that is, even though we live by faith and we walk by faith 
uh, and we, we speak faith and we, we act faith out, even though we do all of that and we ought to do that, but yet that doesn't mean to say that we, we should park our brains or that we shouldn't use common sense at times, you know, or, or we shouldn't take precautions. I mean, they didn't act out of fear here. They acted out of faith, but they took precautions because little babies, you know, they cry a lot. Anyone's just a family who's just had a baby, generally they cry a lot, especially when they're hungry. And in the middle of the night, they really cry. Now, of course, there's some little babies and they're quiet as mice, but then you might get one whose lungs like bellows and you would hear them down the street crying. And so they, they were taking precautions here. They didn't want this baby crying and, and, and attracting attention to it unduly. And so as soon as it was born, they hid it away for three months. I said that because there are people who say they're acting in faith. Uh, and so they say, well, we're not going to take any precautions. We, we throw caution to the wind. We're trusting God and, and we don't do anything about anything at all. We don't listen to anybody. We just do. And I would say to that person, okay, well, if that's the case, when you go to bed at night, tell me this. Do you leave your front door open? Really? Do you? I don't think so. I think you lock your front door because you don't want burglars coming in. But wait a minute, I thought you were walking by faith that God would protect you. No, no, that's a sensible precaution, isn't it? When you park your car and you walk away, don't you lock your car? You don't want some opportunities coming along and stealing your car. I mean, it's just sensible precautions. And so whenever we, whenever we live by faith, it doesn't mean we park our brains. We take reasonable and sensible precautions, but we still trust God in the midst of it all. So we don't act presumptuously when we walk by faith. Now, in Exodus chapter 1, let me just read into this a little bit for you this morning. It's important that we get the, the full import of this. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came out of Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, uh, Reuben Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now you remember, of course, how that Joseph... Uh, his brothers were so desperately jealous of him and they hated him because his father had given him that beautiful coat and had favored him above them. And he had those dreams that the sun and the moon and the stars would bow down before him. And, and of course, that meant them bowing down before him. So they were very angry and they wanted to kill him, actually. And they were about to kill him. And then one of the brothers says, no, let's not kill him. You know, let, let's, let's cover his coat with blood and show it to the father and say, get killed with a wild animal. And just by that, a bunch of Ishmaelites were passing by on their way to Egypt and they sold him to them into slavery. And so he goes into Egypt as a slave. But God's favor was upon him. And God rose him up from being a slave to be the vice regent of all of Egypt. Remember when he was thrown into prison on a false accusation? He was totally not guilty of the charge, but he was thrown into prison. But while he was there, the butler and the baker of Pharaoh was also thrown into prison, and they had two dreams, and they couldn't understand them. And he 
explained their dreams to them, and it came exactly as he said. And then a couple of years later, Pharaoh had this dream that he couldn't understand. He saw seven big fat cows and seven big skinny cows, and he couldn't understand what this was about. And then the butler remembered. He says, you know, there's a, there's a Hebrew guy in prison with us, and we had dreams, and he explained them to us. Long story short, he comes and he explains to Pharaoh, and he says, listen, you're going to have seven years of bountiful harvest, Brilliant harvest is going to be in Egypt for seven years, but then there's going to be seven lean years, and it's going to be, the harvest is going to be dire. And so here's what you ought to do. You ought to build granaries all over Egypt, store all the grain as much as you can, so that when the seven bad years come, Egypt will survive. Its economy won't tank. It'll be brilliant if you do this. And Egypt, or Pharaoh thought, well, this is a great idea for Egypt. I tell you what, seeing you thought of it, I'm going to put you in charge of the whole thing. And then when the seven lean years came, his brothers and his father and his mother and his brothers in their land, because the, the drought now had come into their land, they sent them to Egypt to get some grain. And lo and behold, there they stood before Joseph and they didn't recognize him. This is a number of years later. And there he's standing there and he's dressed like an Egyptian and he speaks Egyptian and they just didn't recognize him. And you remember what happened then? Long story short again, how he forgave them. He said, you meant it for evil, but actually God meant it for good. Now, why didn't my mother and my father and all you brothers, why didn't you all come and live here in Egypt in this designated area called Goshen? Live here while the famine's gone on and you'll do great here. I mean, you'll be blessed here if you just come. And they did that and Pharaoh allowed that. Pharaoh was uh, so happy to hear about this wonderful reunion. So he allowed that. And of course, they stayed there for years and years and years and years. And as we saw here, they stayed there so long that Joseph and all of his family and all that generation they had all passed away. But the, the, the Israelites, they prospered and they grew and they multiplied. So now they're coming to the place where they're filling the land. There's about two million of them by this time. And then look what happens. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Ah. Time went past and a new pharaoh rose up who did not know Joseph. Now either he was not interested in the history of the Hebrews in his land, who, by the way, saved Egypt. I mean, they owed these Hebrews big time because actually they were the ones who saved Egypt, but he wasn't interested. Either he didn't know that or he just wasn't interested. He knew not Joseph. He just paid no heed to that whatsoever. You know, there's a principle there too, isn't there? You see this happening all the time. Maybe it happens in your business or your factory. Uh, you know, maybe say your company, it's doing wonderfully well. It's prospering. It's making great money. And the workforce are tremendous. They, they love their job. And the boss is great. And he loves them and they love him and everything's just going wonderfully well. And then he retires. The boss retires and a new pharaoh comes in who doesn't know Joseph. And then he changes everything. <laughs> you know, he just changes everything. And then the morale drops and the production drops. And then the bonus is not there any longer. And the business is going down the tubes because of this new pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And you see that happening in different places at different times. Well, this is what was happening here. But look, the people, here's what he said in verse 9. And he said to his people, to his people, the Egyptians, 
So he's not counting these Hebrews as anything in the land. No, it's just his people. He said to his people. He's differentiating between his people and them. It's them and us here. That's what he's saying. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Now here is the first recorded anti-Semite in history. And whenever you read a first in the Bible, well, it's the first prayer or whatever, the first person or whatever. Whenever you read a first in the Bible, usually there's a principle that's followed throughout Scripture in this. And here's the first anti-Semite. And what he does, every anti-Semite in history since that has done also. So, he said, look, the people of Israel are more, they're mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war, that they join sides and come against us. And so, by this time, there were so many of the Hebrews. And obviously, they were intermarrying within the Egyptian culture. And so, at the moment, he just couldn't deal with them the way he wanted to. And so, what he would do is he started this propaganda campaign trying to turn the Egyptians against the Hebrews. And every anti-Semite there's ever been has done this. By the way, this is an aside to what I really want to get into in a moment. But every anti-Semite in history has done this. They turn people against the Jews. They make up stories about them. And they say they're this and they're that. And, and three and a half thousand years later, Hitler comes on the scene. In 1932, in Germany, the Jews were holding great positions of influence in Germany. And they were a blessing to Germany, actually. And they were holding professional positions throughout the land. But when Hitler came in in 1932, immediately, immediately, the propaganda against the Jews began with Hitler putting this out. He's blaming for this, he's blaming for that. They're taking all of our jobs, they're taking all of our positions. He blamed them for losing the First World War, and on it goes. He blamed them for siding with America. And now the people start to turn against the Jews in Germany. And then, within two more years, those Jews could not hold uh, citizenship in their own country. And it wasn't too long after that till they were herding them into ghettos and putting a yellow star on them. And after that, then they're putting them on cattle trucks and trains and shipping them off to burn them in the gas chambers and the furnaces of Auschwitz. And so here's this anti-Semite, this Jew-hater. And look what he says. He says, Therefore let them set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they grew and they multiplied. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor or with harshness. And they made, them, made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and all manner of service in the field. And all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor or with harshness. And suddenly the land of Goshen becomes one giant ghetto. And they become slaves to Pharaoh. And then it gets worse. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, the name of the other Pua, 
And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew woman and see them on birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Why would he spare the daughters? Well, they wouldn't be any threat because if there's no Hebrew boys to marry, then they would marry Egyptians. And then bit by bit, the Hebrew race would be gone forever. Every anti-Semite has tried to destroy the Hebrew race, but never have they ever succeeded. And they never will succeed either. Glory to God. And so these two midwives, there was more than two midwives in Egypt, of course, but these are the two main ones. They were in charge of the midwives. But listen to this, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Now, we don't know whether they were Hebrews or whether they were Egyptian. We, nobody knows. If they were Egyptian, being around the Hebrews, perhaps by this time they were believing in the one true living God. And if they were Hebrews, then obviously they would not want to kill their own. But they took a stand here. This is the first recorded act of civil disobedience in history. And they took a stand against Pharaoh. And it was very, very brave and courageous of them to do this, wasn't it? And so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew mightily. And so it was because of the midwives fearing God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, not just midwives, but now all his people, saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. And so now it's gone from termination to extermination. And now he's commanded. There's no conscience clause here to kill these children. Now he's commanded that every male Hebrew child born was to be put to death immediately, thrown and drowned in the Nile. God helped the nation that kills its children. The nation that kills its own children will be judged by God Almighty. You can be sure of that. And so, it says in chapter 2, And the man of the house of Levi went and took a wife, went and took his wife, a daughter of Levi. So this was Amram and Jochebed. You'll find their names in Exodus chapter 6. And when she saw that he was a, and the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. When she saw he was a beautiful child or an unusual child or one that was well-pleasing to God. Now, something stirred within her at this point. This was a beautiful child, no doubt. But every mother thinks its own baby is beautiful, doesn't it? I mean, even if it's as ugly as sin... <laughs> A mother will say, my child is beautiful, and that's wonderful. You wouldn't expect that unless, sure you wouldn't. But there was something different. This wasn't just outward beauty. There was something special about this child, and she sensed that. She sensed that God was up to something. She didn't know quite what yet, but God was up to something. He had given her a beautiful, unusual child. And as a Hebrew, 
she instinctively thought God's in this. This is not just an ordinary child. And it's, it's an unusual child for an unusual reason that's being born. And so she understood something about that. And then by faith, she embraced that idea that God was going to do something unusual with this unusual child of hers. And she embraced that by faith. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him and daubed it with asphalt and pitch and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Now the asphalt and pitch would be around the, the banks of the Nile and it was kind of waterproof, this little ark, this little bassinet that she was going to put her child in and take him down to the, the reed bed and put him in the reed bed. Now this took faith and she did this, not out of fear of what the king might do, but simply by faith. She had prayed. She must have felt God showing her this idea to do this, what to do after a prayer, and she did it by faith. And so she puts it in that reed bed. This would be the place where she knew that Pharaoh's daughter would come to bathe. And she's trusting God that God's in this, what she's doing by faith. She doesn't understand it all. She can't see it all, but she's trusting God in the midst of this that what she's doing is by faith. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And so I would imagine her telling her husband and Miriam, who would be about 10 or 12 years of age at this time. Aaron would only be about three. And I imagine her telling her husband and Miriam, listen, this is what I feel God wants me to do. I know it sounds strange. I know it sounds dangerous, but I'm going to do this by faith. And Miriam, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just... Uh, whenever, whenever I leave the basket in those reeds where the, where the Pharaoh's daughter is going to come to bathe, I want you to be away a little bit from there, but not too far that you don't see what's happening. And then whenever the child is spotted, I want you to be ready. And here's what I want you to say. And so the, the scene was set. And sure enough, then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. <laughs> I, I, can imagine, I can imagine Jochebed praying to God. You know, did you ever find yourself praying to God and telling him exactly what you want to happen? <laughs> As if he doesn't know anyway. You know, and I can imagine saying, now, Lord, I, I'm going to do this. I'm, going, I'm, I'm believing and trusting you, but, but, here, but I want you to cause that baby to cry. As soon as she sees it, you cause that baby to cry so that she'll have compassion. As if God wasn't going to do that in the first place. And that's exactly what happened. Little baby cried. And so she had compassion on him. Now, history says that this particular daughter of Pharaoh was childless. You know, Pharaoh had lots of daughters, but this one was childless. She had no heir. She had no child whatsoever. And so she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Of course, he looked Middle Eastern. She's North African. Skin coloring would be different. And, and, and what Egyptian would put their child in a little ark in a basket in the middle of the reed bed in the Nile? So instantly she knew this is a Hebrew child. Now, this is where Jochebed's faith come in. You know, whenever she left that little child in that reed bed and walked away, she had to trust God that what was going to happen next would be in the plan of God. 
Because any Egyptian could be walking along that reed bank and see that child and would say, I've got to kill that child. But no, this was the plan of God and it was working perfectly. So she says, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, this is Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, <laughs> I can imagine her running down and saying, oh, you found a little baby. Yes, a little Hebrew baby. Wonderful. <laughs> Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman that she may nurse the child for you? This is what her mother had exactly told her to say. Now, not to put too fine a point on it. When she said, do you want a Hebrew mother to nurse this child? We know what that means, don't we? There was no baby formula in those days. There was no bottle feeding. And this Pharaoh's daughter, biologically or any other reason, was not able to do this. So this was a perfect thing to say and to do. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. I got a mice and wee Miriam as fast as her legs could run to run to get her mother and say, Mom, Mom, quick, quick. She's doing it. She's doing it. She wants you to come and look after the child. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. I, I think God has a sense of humor. Can you imagine? Think, think of the bigger picture for a moment. Think of this little baby here. His worst enemy and his best friend are part of the same family. His worst enemy is Pharaoh, and now his best friend is going to be Pharaoh's daughter. Only God could come up with that. You see, the devil can never outsmart God. God's always way ahead of every plot and plan of the evil one. So take this child away, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. <laughs> Imagine Pharaoh not knowing that the very one that was going to be his downfall, <laughs> that he's actually going to pay for the privilege of raising one that was going to be his downfall. Only God could come up with that. Ha. And so we see here that God had a plan. And Jochebed, not knowing all of the plan, but knowing God was up to something, she took every step of faith she possibly could take along the way. And what an audacious plan this was for God to give this woman. And you know the end of the story, how that there came a point when Moses became the great deliverer of the children of Israel out of Egypt. But as we begin to wind up, let me think of this just for a moment. Jochebed had to wean that child for Pharaoh's daughter. Normally that process would maybe be two, maybe three years at the most. But I, I kind of think that she got a little bit longer to do this, maybe, maybe three, four, five years. Because during that time, what she put into her son, when he got older, he never forgot it. He never forgot that underneath he was a Hebrew, that God had called him for a special calling. He never forgot that. So in those few years, she was able to put that into him. 
and all the ways of the Hebrews and the God of the Hebrews. She was able to tell him about Yahweh, but Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews. And so when he became older, then he remembered all of that. But think just for a moment. What must it have been like the day that Jochebed had to hand her son over to Pharaoh's daughter? Maybe she had him for four or five years. Every single day, she would feed him, she would clothe him, she would bathe him. And now comes the moment when she has to give him away and probably never see him ever again. Probably never meet with him ever again. I mean, that's an incredible thing. And she did this by faith. Now, the reason why I'm telling you that is because whenever you and I take steps of faith, sometimes it costs us something. Sometimes we have to lay something down to take something up. Sometimes by taking a step of faith, we may lose a friend. We may lose a job. We may lose a relationship. But to take a step of faith may cost you something. And you have to be prepared to lay it down. And this woman, bless her, was prepared to do this. To give up her son, this unusual child, to give him up to Pharaoh's daughter. But I imagine when she walked away that day, I imagine she says, Lord God, I have done what you wanted me to do. As much as I love him, as much as I'll miss him, but I'm entrusting him into your care and into your keeping. You know, every parent whose son or daughter is on the mission field today has had to do that. It's hard to say, as much as I love my daughter, I love my son, as much as they're going to go to the other side of the world, perhaps, as much as I may not see them very often, but I'll do this for your honor and for your glory. I'll do this by faith, trusting you that you'll bless, that you'll take care, that you'll guard, that you'll guide. So when you take a step of faith, you've got to trust God every step of the way. And then let me just wind up by saying this. What must have been like for Pharaoh's daughter? Did you ever think of this? You know, she probably had him for about at least probably 35 years. In her home all the time, growing up, teaching him, instructing him. And no question that she would have loved him because she didn't have a child. She would have loved him as her own child. But then there came a day when he was 40 years old, when he could no longer not do this, he came to the point where he was going to have to say to Pharaoh's daughter, listen, I no longer am going to be your son. I'm going to walk away. I'm a Hebrew. God has called me to my people. I wonder how she felt. Do you think maybe that she shed a tear or two? I think she would have. You think maybe she felt a little bit hurt? I'm sure she would. But Moses would not have been impervious to her feelings. He would have felt what she was feeling, but he would have to do this. The Bible says, by faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He did it by faith. And so he would have to lay that down in his life in order to take up the call of God in his life. You see, whenever we walk by faith, it causes these challenges in our life. And we can only trust God. 
We can only say, God, you are in control of my life. And so I'm going to lay this down or that down or the other down in order to take up your calling in my life. And I'm going to trust you that this is the right thing to do. And I'll, and I'll know, Lord, that you'll lead me and you'll guide me and you'll bless because I do this, and he will. So I want to encourage you today. You can either walk by faith or you can live in fear, one or the other. I encourage you to walk by faith. No matter what it takes, no matter what price you've got to pay. You know, if you're a non-believer and you have to take the step of faith to trust Christ as your personal Savior, and that is a step of faith to do that, but if you do that, it may cost you something. Not everybody's going to like it. Some will, but some won't. Some family members may not like it. You know, some people in work may not like it. But you've got to lay that down and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you as my personal Savior. I'm going to believe by faith that you'll become my Lord and Savior. And whenever you do that, your life will never be the same. And if you lose some friends, God will give you a hundred more friends for every one you lost. God will bless you more than you could ever imagine. So walk by faith. Don't live in fear. Walk by faith today. Let's pray. Father, for those today who are facing challenges in their own personal lives, in their own personal situations, help them, Lord, by faith to trust you to believe that you are in control of everything in their lives. Even though they may not understand everything, but to trust you to guide and to lead. Thank you, Lord, for your blessing and your goodness and your mercies in our lives today. We're glad that we are walking with you. We're glad that in the midst of all of the challenges of life, that we have someone we can look to and trust in and believe in who will bring us through every situation. To his honor and to his glory and for our good, we ask this in Christ's name.